We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Menconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today, uh, we've got once again with us Klaus Bardenhagen. He's a Taiwan-based freelance reporter who produces broadcast reports for German language media. Klaus, uh, good to have you back on the show. Good to be back. Hi. Also with us, uh, we've got Michael Tim, he, uh, who is a Taiwan defense specialist. Uh, and a research fellow at the Prague-based Think Tank Association for International Affairs. Uh, Michael, good to have you on for the first time. Hello, good to good to be here. Uh, so we have a very strong representation uh, from continental Europe on the show today. Central Europe. Central Europe. Would Germany be considered Central Europe? I guess so, yeah. I guess pretty, so. Pretty much on the center of everything. There we go. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's where we're representing today. Uh, good to rep that for once. Let's start off the show today uh, talking about what we're not going to be talking about. First up, uh, that earthquake yesterday, of course, it was uh, very strong, centered in Elan. I believe it was a 5.8 on the Richter scale, eh, but nothing too much was damaged. Uh, maybe one or two reports of injuries, some uh, glass broken, but eh, not quite making the cut for top news of the week. Uh, also, uh, another thing that came up this week, uh, President Ma ying approved the resignation of Academia Seneca President uh, Wang Qihui. You know, we've covered that story quite a bit already, kind of knew it was going to move in that direction, so... I'm going to skip that one as well. But anyway, that one's wrapped up in a bow. That story is finally over. Uh, So we're going to skip that. And instead, uh, what we've got for you is shenanigans, all kinds of shenanigans in the South China Sea. Uh, Some legal shenanigans, some military and defense shenanigans. Diverse shenanigans is uh, what we're promising you on the show today. Then in the second half, we'll be taking an extended look at this week's controversy surrounding the wording of the invitation for this year's World Health Assembly Summit. Uh, And also what that tells us about how the deep green DPP base is feeling about cross-strait politics right now. Uh, But first, the Mata administration's final cabinet resigned en masse yesterday to make room for the incoming Tsai administration. But before they resigned, uh, the Ministry of Justice made one final, very controversial decision. That is, the decision to carry out the execution of convicted murderer Zheng Jie. Zheng Jie is, of course, the man responsible for a stabbing spree in May 2014 that left four people dead and 22 injured. Uh, He was put to death with three gunshots on Tuesday evening. Uh, So just a little background to this decision. Uh, The Supreme Court did deliver a final verdict on April 22nd upholding Zhang's death sentence. But uh, with only 18 days between that ruling and the execution, some are charging that the timetable was moved forward for political considerations. Uh, Meanwhile, the move has also prompted criticism that proper procedures were not followed. So, uh, once again, we're facing down a a fair number of fairly thorny legal questions here. So, uh, to save us from all this, we're lucky to be joined once again by Bob Cow, who uh, is a lawyer and legal researcher at Queen Mary University of London, and is also the writer behind uh, the popular Taiwan Law Blog. Uh, Bob, good to have you back on the show. Hi, Keith. Uh, Glad to be back here. So, we just had you on the show last week, uh, that time also talking about uh, death penalty issues. So uh, you probably thought that you uh, were done with us. Uh, But we've got some tricky questions again for you this week. Uh, So hopefully you can lay it all out for our listeners. When that criticism about uh, procedures 
uh, and that the procedures were perhaps not followed in this case. What are people talking about there? Yeah, I did think I was done. Um, I did not think that uh, the Mr. Ministry of Justice would execute Tenjie uh, before the uh, inauguration, uh, May 20th, but it happened. Well, to be clear, like you said, uh, the final Supreme Court verdict was handed out. So Tenjie did exhaust his ordinary appeals. So uh, the Ministry Ministry of Justice did abide by the law in the execution. They uh, did not do this while it was on appeal. This uh, it was a final verdict. Um, but in any case, uh, all convicted felons, all convicted prisoners, have the opportunity to file for extraordinary appeal, file for constitutional interpretation, or file for retrial. And all three of these avenues were considered by Zhenjie's lawyers. And there, there isn't really a set timeline, a set deadline for these appeals. So, uh, so it's, not, it's not that the, the MOJ could have waited, say, 30 days for, these, uh, uh, for this to expire and then execute Zhenjie. Uh, that being said, uh, it, it is unlikely the Ministry of Justice did not know the lawyers were going to appeal. Everyone appeals, and they knew the lawyers were going to appeal. So uh, that's probably a consideration when they decided to uh, go ahead with the execution. Right, and probably uh, the most striking thing about this whole episode is the fact that the lawyers did file that appeal. Uh, according to the Taipei Times, only 13 minutes after the execution uh, was carried out. Yeah, and from what, from what I read, uh, one of the lawyers actually was able to get on the phone with someone at the Ministry of Justice saying they were going to file. So... So they knew, the MOJ knew that uh, the, the, the appeal was coming, so they could have stopped it. Um, they, they didn't have to, of course. They were within their right to go ahead with execution. But uh, when we're talking about the death penalty and execution of someone, uh, you know, it's probably better to be more cautious. What's the rush? If, if the MOJ is sure that Chen Jie is guilty and, uh, and he deserves the death penalty, what, what's the problem with letting him... Uh, have his uh, arguments heard in court again. Uh, it'll probably be rejected, but then we'll be sure that we went through the whole process and there will be no controversy. And I think this is a position that uh, everyone should be able to support regardless of whether you support the death penalty or not. And we want to make sure that even if we want, if we support the death penalty, you want to make sure that uh, all legal uh, avenues have been exhausted. Right. Uh, well, we did get a little bit of an explanation from Justice Minister Luo Yingshe, uh, and she said something to the effect of, uh, you know, this this had to be carried out in a timely manner because, uh, you know, Zheng Jie was responsible for really disrupting public order, scaring a lot of people, frightening society as a whole, uh, and it was important to, you know, put that whole episode behind uh, Taiwan. Uh, and also, I mean, some uh, so, some Justice Ministry officials were saying that uh, in some ways, you know, there are a lot of uh, folks in the DPP who oppose the death penalty, so they were almost doing uh, the DPP a favor by taking this off their plate of uh, things to deal with. So that th- those are some of the justifications that were kind of put forward this week. Uh, do you see something else uh, behind this decision? Um, I mean, I, I, those things seem like very likely uh, uh, explanations. I don't have really have any other kind of possibilities, and I think... It, it, it is. I mean, there is talk that once the DPP takes power, that they may uh, institute another moratorium, uh, like what happened under Chen Shui-bian. 
So perhaps instead of doing the DPP a favor, it's actually uh, executing Zhenjie because they know the DPP, DPP won't do it. Um, and it, it's, it's hard to say. And I think one thing I want to add also is that Zhenjie's lawyers probably cannot also be blameless. You know, I, I know they're, they're really fierce advocates and they're doing this for little or no money, but they must have guessed that there was a possibility that the execution was going to happen. And the appeal should have been ready uh, probably before the final verdict by the Supreme Court was, was handed down. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, and I think, I think they should have seen this coming and probably filed an appeal sooner. Um, so let's talk about the importance of the UN Human Rights Covenants at this point, because um, it has been made quite clear also by the international experts who have come to review Taiwan's law situation that these provisions must be um, made part of the domestic law and that while the death penalty per se is not um, something that is in um, uh, objection to these covenants, uh, they need to institute some um, way to well, have them exhaust all possibilities of appeal before executions are being carried out. And that is not regulated in Taiwanese law yet, as I see the situation. So do you think that this is something the DPP government um, could use as a strategy, that they would say, okay, we, while we do not plan to get rid of the death penalty, we first need to enact some laws that make sure that our laws do not contravene the spirit of the human rights covenants at until that is settled, we will institute some kind of unofficial moratorium? I think that would be a good idea. And I think it, it, you're right. There's the, the, there needs to be criminal justice reform uh, in terms of appeals, uh, in particular for death penalty. You know, we see you know, appeals in seven, eight, nine retrials and appeals for every death penalty case, and there's just never uh, an end. And there needs to be some kind of reform that spells out the time, the deadline for filing these appeals and a, a more strict uh, uh, standard for evaluating, evaluating these appeals. And uh, because otherwise it just drags on. We know, you know, the, the case uh, 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 last week, it, there was six or seven appeals in the Shui Zhejiang case last year. There were... I think he received uh, four or five death penalties before then being found not guilty. And during any during this process, the MLJ could have gone through with an execution if one of the retrial appeals uh, was denied. So uh, there definitely needs to be reform to uh, make the domestic law abide by CCPR. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, very strange note to end out. Uh, you know, this whole term of the cabinet. Uh, but there's been a lot of strange stuff coming up in the last uh, three months, so uh, I guess we're just going to have to leave it there. Uh, with any luck, Bob, we're not going to have to have you on anytime soon talking about the death penalty. Hopefully uh, that's it for the time being. Uh, but we could actually use uh, your insights uh, for the next story. Uh, could you stick around for one more? Yes, of course. Good deal. All right. Uh, the reason that we could really use Bob for the next story is because uh, we are diving headfirst into the murky waters of the legal dispute surrounding claims to the South China Sea. Uh, now, for some time now, uh, the Permanent Court of Ar Arbitration in The Hague has been hearing arguments in a case that the Philippines has brought against China 
to challenge their territorial claims in the South China Sea. Uh, China has been noticeably absent from the proceedings. They've basically been uh, boycotting the whole thing, not even deigning it with uh, their attention. Uh, Taiwan also uh, has not been represented uh, at the proceedings, despite the fact that, of course, uh, the ROC's own claims uh, mirror those of China's, or Maybe we could say China's mirrors the ROCs. It gets complicated if you look at it too hard. Uh, the point is, is that, uh, you know, it, it really does touch on ROC interests uh, in the region. Uh, and uh, Taiwan just hasn't been there until this week. Uh, this week, what happened is a government-linked uh, organization known as the Chinese Society of International Law uh, submitted evidence into the case. Uh, and the main evidence was uh, basically bolstering the claim that Taiping Island is in fact an island. Uh, you know, there's running water there, there's people that can live there, can support economic life, habitation, all of that. Uh, that is, of course, something that the Philippines has been arguing against, uh, which has, you know, really gotten up the hackles of uh, many in Taiwan's government. Uh, so, Bob, I want to get your take. Uh, I mean, this is uh, kind of an end run in a way because it's not the Taiwan government itself that submitted these documents. Uh, it's a, a, an organization that just has ties to the ROC government. Uh, so in your view, I mean, is this going to have any effect on the proceedings that are going on at The Hague? Well, uh, first of all, uh, this amicus brief, which is a, a brief by a, a friend of the court brief, uh, was actually submitted in uh, late March. So I, I, I wonder why it is only now getting uh, coverage media. We're just slow to the punch, sorry. Well, not you, but just everyone. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, it's interesting. Uh, the, so the Chinese Society of Interna uh, International Law uh, submitted this amicus brief uh, on March 23rd. Um, and uh, it, it, like you said, it's basically a factual brief stating the reasons that the Taiping Island uh, is an island. And I don't see this uh, delaying the, the final verdict at all for the final decision as i've read uh, in some reports uh it's it's up to the tribunal whether they want to look at accept the brief uh in the first instance and if they want to look at it and then how much weight they want to give to the brief given that these are mostly factual statements and not legal arguments it probably doesn't take too long for the tribunal to to understand what what was submitted the, the Chinese Society of International Law, yes, although it's technically an uh, uh, academic society, of course, uh, it has strong ties to the government. Uh, and we know that it's not a secret. I mean, the yearbook that the society uh, uh, publishes, the editor is my angel. It's right there on the cover. So whatever was in the statement uh, is whatever the government position is. So Right. I've, re I've read this. I've read the... Amicus brief. It's it's solid. It does uh, it does actually provide information that wasn't really uh, in front of the tribunal uh, during the oral arguments. Some light evening reading for yourself there. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's what I do when I'm, when I'm not on the show. <laughs> we, we do appreciate that. Uh, so it's uh, you know I, it's, I think the the idea is good, given that uh, Taiwan or ROC is, is not a party to this tribunal. Uh, get, getting some evidence in is, is a good idea. Mm. Um, I just wonder uh, whether maybe perhaps they should have uh, included legal arguments uh, in addition to factual statements. Mm. 
And um, also, there's also some talk, and I'm not an expert on this, but from what I heard from other legal scholars, that there was an opportunity for for Taiwan to actually be a party in not if not this arbitration, but some kind of international arbitration mm. uh, uh, to to actually you know actually be a party instead of just being this you know friend of the court that can be easily cast aside. Well, maybe I would just add add a remark on that. Uh, I think it's important to look at why actually Philippines argue that Taiping Island is not island. Mm. And the reason is that, that the uh, exclusive economic zone that the Philippines claim is overlapping with the one that uh, that would be established or is, is established uh, around the Taiping Island. And uh, uh, it's not that important how big the landmass is as, mm. as long as it uh, uh, fulfills certain conditions. Right. So the mainland Philippines... Have right to the same uh, to the very same uh, uh, exclusive economic zone as as uh, as, uh, as the Taiping Island, and the two are overlapping. And so Philippines basically just trying uh, to to eliminate uh, Taiwan's claim in order to maximize theirs. I think uh, in in terms of what the court will be ruling, I think Taiwan can feel pretty safe on this because mm-hmm. I, I don't simply see how would uh, how would uh, Taiwan's claim on uh, exclusive economic zone around Taiping Island which is which is uh, why this whole debate about Taiping Island is whether it is or not island it's about the exclusive economic zone I don't think they have to worry that much about but it's reasonable that they used uh, uh, at least this limited avenue to to right make the voice heard. Right, even if the nine-dash line doesn't necessarily hold water, that's the more expansive claims to nearly all of the South China Sea, it seems like the Taiping Island itself should probably be considered an island. I mean, we have all those pictures of people like eating bananas, drinking water there. It <laughs> seems pretty islandy. Out of the plentiful features in South China Sea, Taiping Island is, is probably one of the very few that, that actually could claim the status of the island in it, to the full extent of the law. Yeah. It, do, do you basically agree with all that, Bob? I think so. I think uh, you know, I, I wasn't invited to, to visit the island, so I don't know for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like it. It's another invitation that was lost in the mail, I'm sure. All right. Well, uh, we're going to cut that little piece of the program short right there. Uh, Bob, thank you for all of your uh, expert insight uh, and advice. Uh, always helps us get through these thorny legal questions. So thanks a bunch for that. Great. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be on All right. Now, uh, before we round out the first half, as promised, we've got some of those uh, military shenanigans uh, to report on as well. That being uh, the U.S. Navy conducted another one of its Freedom of Navigation missions near the Chinese-occupied Fiery Cross Reef earlier this week. Uh, Now, the key word here is freedom of navigation. We've discussed this uh, a bit on the show before. Basically, all that it means is uh, the U.S. has its view on what parts of the ocean are, are free to travel through. The China has its notion on what parts of the South China Sea are free to travel through. Uh, China, you know, would see much more of that ocean as not okay to travel through. So the U.S. is just doing it anyway, saying, we think this should be fine. It's not really yours. We're going to bring our carriers or destroyers through this territory just to show that we can. Uh, Nothing really new there. Uh, The U.S. has done that a number of times uh, in the last six months or so. Uh, or I'm and, getting and, and sick. sometimes the minister of defense just happens to be on board. Just yeah, he was passing through. It's, I, I hear happens. there's I hear there's a good view in the South China Sea. Beautiful area, beautiful area. Uh, well, I guess we should just double check uh, since we have a defense expert in the room with us. We might as well check. Uh, my sense is nothing new here, uh, Michael. Nothing new here. Uh, 
Yeah, nothing extraordinarily new. It is important to know that it is important that the United States are trying to make these uh, freedom of navigation missions. There are two two main reasons why they are doing that. Uh, first, they uh, want to challenge the notion that uh, that uh, China might be restricting um, uh, freedom of navigation in 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 the entirety of uh, what what is the exclusive economic zone, which is 200 nautical miles from any given land feature that that mm-hmm. can claim the easy. And Chinese Chinese uh, are pushing the interpretation that as long as it's ours, easy, which is not territorial waters, that's important to, to note. Mm. And then you need uh, some sort of approval. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to note, notify us, et cetera, et cetera. And especially if it's military ships. Mm. Now, right. there is nothing in international law, not nothing in, in the United Nations Convention on Law of the Seas, which is the important piece of paper here, that would uh, preclude such activities. Mm-hmm. So the uh, United States simply say this is nothing against the law. Uh, right. The sea beyond territorial waters is free for everyone to sail. Right. Now, the second reason is that uh, they also want to challenge that the notion that the uh, artificial islands can claim territorial waters. Mm-hmm. So they're actually cl- sailing as close as possible mm-hmm. to, to show that uh, they not only... Uh, disrespect uh, the Chinese uh, idea that any sailing through the EEZ needs to be uh, consulted with Chinese. They also want to challenge the the, the right of the artificial features to actually claim anything beyond some uh, security safety zone. Mm. Okay, so uh, that story, I just wanted to brush up on it uh, real quickly as a way to get into uh, another very interesting story this week. Of course, uh, while, as Michael says right there, uh, these freedom of navigation uh, missions aren't necessarily uh, running up against international law, they have been a huge source of friction between the U.S. and China. Uh, and, Michael, you recently uh, argued in a Ketagalan media piece uh, that that friction has offered up an opportunity to strengthen U.S.-Taiwan ties uh, in a pretty concrete way. Uh, mm-hmm. But the U.S. has missed the boat, so to speak. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your argument there. So in in the last couple of months, uh, the uh, United States Navy carrier uh, John C. Stennis was sailing in South China Sea mm. uh, as a part of the Freedom of Navigations missions, and that, that was the that was the ship that was ho- uh, that hosted a, a, a Secretary of Defense uh, Ash Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, and after after John C. Stennis finished its mission in South China Sea, uh, it was on its way back to back to Japan when when the Seventh uh, Fleet, U.S. Seventh Fleet, is based, and there was a scheduled stop uh, in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Yeah, and that that has been uh, going on for ages. It's pretty routine operation. Uh, right, but this time, first time since two thousand seven, uh, Chinese denied the docking. At the last minute, too. At the very last minute, mm-hmm. uh, one day before it was supposed to, or a couple of days. Uh, it's not certain when it was supposed to arrive. Mm-hmm. And so, what all those I've, lonely sailors were, were were kept out at sea for another yeah, couple of it's, days. Yeah, uh, it's it's not it's not just uh, it's not just uh, you know uh, there's a lot of logistics going around. Right. It, so uh, sometimes the the relatives of the sailors uh, go to the poor destination uh, mm. to to meet their family members. Mm. So it's actually to do it a few days or even one day uh, before the ship was supposed to arrive 
to cancel it, that that's a lot of logistical hassle. It's a bit of a. I guess I can't say it on air, but we'll just say it's a bit of a D move. Hmm. Not a nice thing to do. Uh, uncool, uncool, uncool. We'll go with that. We'll go with uncool. Uh, okay, so what was? Uh, where does Taiwan come into all this? Well, uh, what I think uh, U.S. could do was, uh, and the U.S. actually proposed it. And there were some voices in the U.S. that that, that proposed the idea. Uh, um, there was a um, chairman uh, of the Armed Service Committee who argued that that actually, if China keeps doing this with Hong Kong and, and if he, if it's using it as a political tool, then let's just move the the uh, the, the destinations where the uh, U.S. Navy stops somewhere else. And somewhere else, what is there between? Between you know Singapore, which is the another U.S. base, and in Japan, it's Taiwan mm. <laughs> and Philippines, right? And uh, so I said, let's 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 just stop at Taiwan. It's a, it's a friendly nation. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a lie, and uh, they are not going to give us the same troubles as Chinese are doing with Hong Kong. Mm. And uh, so that was, a, but that was more remark. You know, you know, like uh, let's do that like next time. Mm-hmm. I would argue that should have actually happened now mm. because that was the best time to, 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 to do that, even though the logistics would be obviously difficult. But uh, Kaohsiung is a big port. Right. It, it could, it could uh, host an right. aircraft carrier. So for those of us that uh, don't entirely understand the significance of all of these you know, military machinations, what it means when a plane flies by here or encroaches on this territory over here, w- what would be the significance of a move like that to have uh, a U.S. carrier ported in Kaohsiung? Well, you would have uh, a couple of thousands of uh, American sailors who would who would disembark in Kaohsiung and, uh, and move around and talk to people, and mm. and there would probably something like a, a open day, so people would would be able to come uh, to the aircraft carrier and then uh, you know look around. It's basically like people to people exchanges. Mm. Uh, so while it's relatively innocent in its nature, uh, it would be it would be actually a big demonstration of, of uh, U.S. Taiwan relations, and mm. uh, you know, for, it would be basically not, not really first time, but first time since 1979, where you would have a large number of, of, of mm. uh, U.S. troops on even temporarily on on Taiwan soil. Mm. Well, I think if that had happened, off that would happen, China would go completely crazy. I mean, they would just explode. A U.S. aircraft carrier is such a huge symbol of American military power. Um, I mean, the controversy after arms sales would be nothing compared to that, probably. When was the last time any U.S. Army member set foot on Taiwan in an official capacity, apart from maybe humanitarian rescue flights after an earthquake? Mm, well, it depends uh how high-ranking uh, official you're talking about? Because uh, I mean, there are uh, uh, members that are from the Department of Defense, from Pentagon, who are part of the American mission in Taiwan, but not they really are, publicly visible, not like an aircraft carrier. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, well, then the point is, it, it in this particular case, it would be China who would basically, uh, though uh, unintentionally, send the carrier to Taiwan. Mm. And uh, and it's it's still just a just a port stop, right? It's not mm. a permanent pacing. Uh, so yeah, I agree. Of course, China would be to, uh, totally outraged. But uh, uh, if the reason why uh, the courier appeared in Kaohsiung, which is uh, the best destination, uh, is that uh, would, the reason would be that that particular carrier was denied to port in Hong Kong. So. Mm. 
more cover in, than usual. In your face, Beijing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, it's kind of uh, interesting. I mean, I, I kind of want to broaden this just to maybe look at a more long-term question very quickly before we wrap up the first half. Do, do you see in general as the relationship between the U.S. and China has been souring over the last year or so, do, do you agree with a lot of observers that say that this might be an opportunity for the U.S. and Taiwan to strengthen their, uh, their ties militarily? The opportunity is definitely there. But I guess I, I, guess I should rephrase that to say, mm. is that the trajectory that's likely? It is likely, and it is likely also because uh, uh, Chinese are making a lot of people around the region nervous. Mm-hmm. So it's not only bringing closer U.S. and Taiwan, it, it's, it brings closer uh, Japan and Taiwan. Um, so, um, but then a lot of people would, would tell you of record if you would talk to people, f- for example, from uh, from the Department of State or, or Department of Defense, they would argue that the, the military and security relations with Taiwan are actually very strong. It's just everything is underneath the surface. Hush, hush. So uh, no one talks about it, no one mm. knows about it, but there are uh, hundreds or even thousands of exchanges every year mm. um, on a military level. Yeah. And well, one of the things that that's going on for almost twenty years is that there is a permanent, uh, basically permanent uh, Taiwan military mission in 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 uh, uh, at the Luke Air Force Base in in Arizona, where the Taiwanese F sixteen pilots are training. And that, mm. That's going on for twenty years. Mm. So you have you have these kind of exchanges going on 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 daily basis. Mm. All right. Uh, we're going to end out that segment right there. Uh, the article, once again, on Ketagalan Media, you can look it up right there, is U.S. Misses Chance After USS Stennis Denied Hong Kong Access. Uh, so if you want to take an even deeper dive into that subject, it's waiting for you right there. Uh, but that's going to have to do it for the first half of the show this week. When we return, we'll be taking one final deep dive into the cross-strait abyss before Tsai Ing-wen takes office next week. Uh, because we'll be taking a look at the WHA Invitation Spat. Stay tuned for all that and more when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Klaus Bardenhagen and Michael Tim. Jumping back into things... Uh, Time to talk about that invitation to the World Health Assembly. Kind of mentioned it a couple weeks ago. It's been simmering in the background for a while there. Taiwan was waiting uh, to get that invitation. It was taking longer than we expected. Uh, we didn't even want to do it last Friday because it just seemed like another one of these, you know, grab bag of cross-strait disputes. Uh, didn't really have anything extra going for it. So, you know, we kind of just left it off. Uh, well, the invitation did arrive. Uh, and that's when the controversy really exploded, like a day after our show last week. Uh, because the reason it became so controversial is was the mention on the invitation of the One China Principle and UN Resolution 2758. What is UN Resolution 2758? That is the resolution that uh, the UN has no dealings with the Republic of China. So that's a bit of a controversial resolution right there, twisting a a certain very uh, sensitive knife for uh, folks in Taiwan uh, on that invitation. Uh, Now, DPP leadership has decided that they will attend the meeting 
uh, which is slated for later this month. We'll, we'll talk about the decision in just a second. Uh, but first, let's uh, kind of look at a little bit why it is uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, which is uh, the UN organization behind uh, this summit, w- how it would come to be that, you know, the one China principle and all that would be a part of uh, this invitation, because uh, that's an unprecedented move, apparently. Uh, Klaus, w- w- what do you see be behind that? Well, I think um, like in any UN organizations, China People's Republic has a lot of weight to throw around mm-hmm. there. And um, if they don't want something to happen or if they want to have some clause inserted into some official letter, I think they will just know which strings to pull. Now, in the case of the W. H.O., you have the additional fact that the director general of the WHO is Margaret Chen, who is from China. So people might suspect that um, she might be even more willing to give in to some kind of um, pressure. Mm. Um, But nothing happens in the UN without the Chinese having some say in it. Right, right. Uh, And would you guys just see this as yet another example of uh, China? posturing or pressuring uh, the Tsai administration uh, ahead of the inauguration next week. Is that the proper way to interpret this? If if the reports are true that the invitation came after pressure from the United States and a, and a European, European state who participate in WHO and WH on uh, the World Health Assembly. So, so it's, possible, p- it's possible it's possible the the inclusion of one China principle was some part of you know consensus between the sides that were pushed for Taiwan's participation and and China that that what uh, was they always they always delivered the invitation last minute mm. and it's a it's uh it's it has to be repeated every year so there is like no permanent uh membership of Taiwan in right. WHA uh so i think uh, i think this was uh, in the end uh you know consensus between those who pushed for Taiwan and and, and China who who conceded to that but under certain mm. conditions i think that the inclusion of that UN resolution is really weird uh mm. I think so, too, because that's something new, right? I mean, normally it's um, references to the One China Principle or the 1992 consensus, but now we have to learn this number, UN Resolution 2758. And if you look at it, what does it say? It doesn't talk about Taiwan, of course. It doesn't talk about the Republic of China. That's not mentioned in there. They talk about the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek are expelled from the United Nations. So the Taiwanese side, the DPP government, could very well just say, look at this and say... Yeah, well, we don't claim to be the representatives of Chiang Kai-shek anymore. Cite that resolution, whatever you want. Hmm. Might be an outcome. I don't know if China <laughs> if China thought of that. That is an oddly uh, specific stipulation. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so uh, whatever was behind it, it certainly did leave a bad uh, taste in the mouth of many uh, citizens of Taiwan. Uh, stoked a lot of anger. I mean, the, the I would say the first four or five days of this week, this was the front on every single paper, this story. Um, so, you know, very uh, upsetting to a lot of people in Taiwan. Not sure how much it's going to accomplish. Uh, another thing that it brings up, though, is it's, it's also quite a good test, uh, I think, of how much leeway is going to be granted to the Thai administration as they roll in next Friday. Uh, of course, everybody, as we've said again and again and again on the show, uh, is going to be watching uh, exactly what ca- comes out of her inauguration speech, whether it gives uh, any kind of hint as to what her cross-strait policy uh, is going to be. Um, 
what is interesting to me about this whole episode is that, of course, the DPP did decide that they are going to move forward uh, with sending a delegation over. Uh, their reasoning being that, you know, even if there was, by some people's interpretation, some disrespect in the invitation, some uh, undermining of the sovereignty of the ROC, uh, it's still better to, you know, participate in international organizations and have uh, that outreach. Uh, now, you might expect some people in Taiwan to say, no, you know, we're not going to participate unless the full dignity of the ROC uh, is fully recognized, and that's our bottom line. Uh, but actually, I don't think that we did hear that, that this week. Uh, what we instead heard this week is a lot of people saying, yeah, well, uh, it's probably better that we uh, do participate. In fact, uh, there was a poll that kind of supports this general impression that I have. It found that 71% of respondents uh, said that participating uh, did not mean that the delegation was supporting the one China principle. Uh, so the general sense I'm getting is that uh, voters are taking a, a, a relatively uh, pragmatic view uh, to this whole scenario. Uh, and I want to turn it over to you guys uh, to ask the question, you know, we've we focused so much up to now on what is China going to find permissible in Tsai Ing-wen's uh, inauguration speech. What are they going to be okay with? Let's really look at uh, the other end of that balancing act that Tsai Ing-wen is going to have to try to balance. Uh, the Green voters, uh, what do you think they're gonna, is going to be their bottom line uh, in looking at how Tsai Ing-wen formulates that cross-strait policy? Now, uh, let, let's throw things over to Klaus first because you, you've actually taken this on as uh, a little bit of a mission, getting to know some of these voters and, and, and understanding their views. So what's what's your impression been so far? Yeah, you know, like leading up to the inauguration ceremony, I have been working on some reports about the current political situation in Taiwan. And I was just wondering, so what about the deep green camp? You know, some of them are in the DPP or in other parties, Taiwan Solidarity Union and even more deep green parties. How are they going to react to the fact that they will have to swallow some bitter pills under the new government? Because right. Tsai, as much as they may have supported her instead of a KMT candidate, she is not going to declare Taiwanese independence in, right. a, in a way of getting rid of the ROC constitution. In right. fact, she um, stated very clearly that she will accept the ROC constitutional order. Mm -hmm. And so I went and I talked to one of, I guess you might call him a deep green leader. It's uh, Tsai Dingwei, and mm -hmm. he's the chairman of the Alliance for Referendum for Taiwan. They are those mm -hmm. guys who are camping out in the green tent around the corner from the legislative UN. They've been mm -hmm. there for eight years. They were the ones who helped the students cross the gates of the parliament that night back in 2014. And Tsai Dingwei, who was educated in the U.S., uh, at uh, the same time that Tsai Ing-wen was. They even met briefly mm. at Stanford, I think. He also founded his own party, the so-called Free Taiwan Party. Mm. Um, they only got about, I don't know, 1% of the, of the vote in the last parliamentary elections. But still, so he's trying to have his, um, his NGO and his political party as well. And um, I just asked him, so what... How, will you be disappointed with Tsai Ing-wen when she takes office and she will not make your dream come true? And he basically answered in a quite pragmatic way. He said, well, we ex know what kind of pressure she is under from China, from the international community. Mm. And no, we are not going to be disappointed because we understand that and we, kn we know that she is going to do what she can. We understand the limitation of the DPP or Tsai Ing-wen can do. 
as the ROC president. She has limitation at the same time she has the some difficulties. We before the election we already know whatever she can do is not very much to uh, uh, achieve the sovereign state of Taiwan in her term. Of course that we wish she can do as much as she can, but at the same time we understand she she under pressure from China, maybe from uh, United States. So we understand that. And then he even said that um, from his understanding, Tsai would act like a mediator between the two extremes of, on the one hand, the Chinese government and the calls for unification. And on the other hand, guys like him, Tsai Ding Wei and his groups calling for a new constitutional system for Taiwan. And Tsai would be in the middle and trying to balance things out. And he seemed to be okay with that. But right. then some other groups came out during the last week or so, some other mm -hmm. deep green independence groups, right. and they said, we do not want to compromise. And they reminded the incoming government to not um, give in too much. So I, I think it's not a unified front on the deep green side either. It's a bit of a mixed bag, yeah. But it's, it sounded, though, like their bottom line was really the 1992 consensus. That was, that was I guess, I shouldn't say their bottom line, their red line. That was the line that they really didn't want to see uh, Tsai Ing-wen cross, is recognizing the 1992 consensus. Uh, so, I mean, short of that, as long as she doesn't do that, I, do, do you feel like they're going to give her a certain amount of leeway? I think they will. I mean, um, they had the experience of eight years of KMT government now, and mm -hmm. they saw where that was heading. So anything's an improvement from their perspective? Uh, I guess so. I mean, and, and they've tried banging their head against the wall time and again and again, and they see that they didn't make that much of an impact on the international political stage. Mm. Domestically, yes, but not internationally. So right. I think their expectations... Uh, like about UN membership and new constitutional system have been lowered. Maybe they learn to be more patient because they might also say, looking at society in Taiwan, they might say, well, things are going our way. If you look at identification of people as Taiwanese versus Chinese, mm. um, they might have some reason to be more patient right mm. now. Uh, Michael, what, what, what's your sense of where uh, the deep greens are at at this point? Um, I think that the groups that are that would be um, strongly uh, against Tsai in terms of any compromise uh, are, are marginal groups. So these are not these are not uh, large parts of DPP or, or, or DPP affiliated or DPP aligned uh, groups. Uh, I agree that kind of the, the red line would be the endorsement of 1992 consensus, and Tsai is not going to do that. Tsai mm. is going to. Uh, to what she has been doing during the presidential campaign. So she would acknowledge that the meeting happened. Uh, no one is denying that. And uh, That would be a weird thing to that, deny. <laughs> it's pretty well documented. And, and, and that's pretty much it. And that the, uh, their, her cross-trade policy is based on you know, ROC constitution, etc., etc. Chinese, I think, will have to deal with that. I, I'm, um, I don't really see... Uh, what else they can pull off on Tsai to not to look uh, totally unreasonable. Uh, and compared to previous decade when Chen Chui-bian was, was president, Chinese have uh, much more on play than they had back then uh, mm. in terms of uh, regional politics. So they have to deal with uh, worse relations with Japan and, and South China Sea. And they, uh, you know, for Beijing now, 
and in the next couple of years, it will be much more difficult to paint Taiwan as the one who is a troublemaker than, than it was 10 years ago. Mm. So uh, I don't really see uh, Beijing having uh, a large number of options that would put uh, stronger pressure on Tsai. And so, you know, one of the one of the policies that people mention China might implement is to decrease the number of Chinese tourists. But then the reaction in Taiwan is, oh, okay, that's quite cool. <laughs> Sun we Moon. don't really we don't really mind that. <laughs> Sun Moon Lake will be a little less crowded, I guess. Yeah. yeah so, um, and uh, then there's the issue of stealing diplomatic allies. But uh, I think that that. China might pick up a few of them, but China is not going to collect all of them because for China, it is still better if there is some presence of ROC in the international arena than uh, none whatsoever. Because if there is no PRC, if there is no ROC, what's there left? It's, it's just Taiwan, right? And it's mm. it's it's uh, actually a much worse option for for China than uh, than uh, tolerating a couple of states uh, recognizing ROC instead of PRC. Mm. All right. Well, uh, let's let Klaus have the last word for uh, this part of the program then. I mean, uh, looking even forward past the inauguration speech, uh, we're hearing there from Michael that he uh, thinks uh, there's going to be some constraints on uh, how far China is going to be able to push this pressure on, on Taiwan. Uh, do, do, you, do you also see those constraints? It's going to be a limited pressure? I think it depends a lot on how all those other things are going to play out. I mean, uh, China's economy, for example, um, how bad is the situation going to get there? And will the government in Beijing feel the need to demonstrate to Mm. their people back home their military power and their international standing? Will they maybe um, welcome some kind of um, international political crisis, China versus US, China versus Taiwan, in order Mm. to distract people from other problems that they are facing. So the domestic scene is probably going to matter more than, you know, what specific words Tsai chooses to use next Friday. And that's something that Tsai or the Taiwanese government will not have any influence on Mm -hmm. whatsoever. So they are really need to see what's coming and then react in a flexible way to that. All right. Well, that's going to actually be our very final look at cross-strait politics before the inauguration next week. So we're just going to have to uh, let everything stand there, and we will know a whole bunch more uh, after we've heard that inauguration speech. So uh, with that in mind, we're going to move now to our final segment. This is our bonus podcast segment that we always produce for our podcast listeners. Uh, And to help us out with this one this time around, uh, we've got Michael Smith, which is the ICRT Southern Taiwan correspondent, all the way down in Kaohsiung, uh, to help us out with uh, a little bit of Kaohsiung news that came up this week. Hi, Michael. Hey there. So that bit of Kaohsiung news being uh, Taroko Park. It's uh, kind of an odd concept, uh, Taroko Park in Kaohsiung. Uh, But walk us through this. What is Taroko Park? Yeah, I've been watching this uh, venue as it developed over the past uh, year or so, and the stuff it was promising on the billboards outside was just, it seemed fantastic to me, and I thought, you know, there's something wrong here. There's no way they're going to have an actual racetrack inside this place and all the rest of it. I couldn't quite understand, but on May 9th, it opened, and it turns out everything on the billboards that they had advertised uh, turns out to be accurate. So there's a lot of hopes, at least by the company that uh, built this place, that it will be the biggest and most entertaining amusement park in Asia, they're saying. Now, I'm not sure exactly how uh, they're going to back that, 
uh, claim up, but it does have a Suzuka Circuit racetrack, and it's the only authorized one outside of Japan. It's a replica that's only one-tenth the size of the real one, but it does have eight turns to it, and it has uh, miniature race cars that get up to 60 or 70 kilometers an hour. You can ride it if you're under 18. You have to have uh, parental permission to do so, however. You have to be uh, at least uh, 120 centimeters tall, but uh, other than that, if you uh, are into it, you can do it for a reasonable price. It's not that expensive, so they've got a racetrack in there. Do they Besides also have that, a... They've also got um, uh, another Ferris wheel. I don't know why people keep building Ferris wheels. I, I find them completely boring. But anyway, <laughs> uh, the, the entire place is pretty massive. We're talking about 87,000 square meters. So that also includes, of course, uh, hundreds of retailers and shops. So what they did essentially is there was an area just before the Kaohsiung International Airport. And this little section of land has been somewhat underdeveloped. There was a river or sewer, depending on your point of view, that flowed uh, nearby there. And they used much of that area to hold containers and shipping containers that would be taken down to the docks, et cetera, et cetera. So they dug up the one section of that area that was, that was quite old, and they began constructing this new park. And the idea is to sort of link it up with the MRT system, the airport, and also you've got the Dream Mall, which is a very, very large mall, about three kilometers away from there. So this area, which is not that far away from the, uh, the, the port, which is also being redeveloped over on the, the waterway, they're just trying to up the area there and create a tourist uh, mecca. They're trying to get 12 million visitors in their first year of operation, and that would include like 6 million from the greater Kaohsiung area and then the rest uh, from domestic and foreign tourist visits. So, I mean, I stopped by the outside of it not long ago, and it looks very impressive. Uh, there wasn't that many people there at the time, and I certainly didn't go to the opening because uh, that's a bad idea. But uh, it does look very impressive, and we'll have to see how it does. It, uh, it's exciting. There's a hope of 5 billion NT annual revenue and 5,000 jobs for Kaohsiung. So if that came to pass, that would be good. Another interesting thing is you don't buy tickets. You get your little Kaohsiung iPass, uh, which is the same as the Type A Easy card, and you beep your way into various rides and facilities and all of that. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Any questions? <laughs> is there also a replica of, a replica of Taroko Gorge in there, or how did they come <laughs> up with that name? Uh, no, actually, I don't think there's any connection whatsoever between the two. But um, The development a... company is the connection. I think the development company is like Taroko Development or something. Yeah, correct. And they've uh, done other stuff before, like batting cage uh, parks and different stuff. This park in particular, I would say, is, is trying to be a mixture of more of a sports facility, amusement park, but focusing more on stuff that is more action. So you've got a miniature golf course, basketball courts, uh, that kind of stuff, rather than, you know, teacup rides or mm. that sort of stuff. So yep. a little bit more cutting edge. And if, uh, if all these things that, that they're advertising are as awesome as they appear to be, it would be something quite original and different. Now, you didn't get into this too much, but another end of the uh, things here is it's also supposed to be a, a retail mecca. I mean, that's uh, like half of it, pretty much, is, is that right, mall well, that you were talking course, about. Unfortunately, you can't uh, build any sort of uh, park these days without having, you know, plenty of shopping, right? So, yes, 
there's going to be at least 220 retailers, and there's more shopping than you can possibly imagine. So all in all, they're hoping that people will come, maybe race a car a little bit, buy a few things, have some food, and uh, then go. You can literally go walk down to the subway, hop on, and, and go home. So everything it looks good, and uh, I will definitely be checking it out, and perhaps I'll be able to give you a, a more personal report next time. All right, so the claim that the developer is making is they're going to try to make this the Taipei 101 of southern Taiwan. That's quite the claim. I don't know what the connection between the two is, however. Well, just in terms, <laughs> just in terms of uh, how iconic and how yeah, uh, the, the, the level of the draw. Of All right, and so the test that I want to put uh, to this establishment right now is uh, we're, we're going to see if it gets the seal of approval from uh, the guests here today on uh, Taiwan This Week. Uh, so I'm going to put it to you guys. Uh, you just heard Michael's entire description of it. Uh, are you sold on it? Is this a place you're going to have to visit on this in the same way that you would have to visit Taipei 101? Klaus, what's your take? I would go there if only to see if I can hit a golf ball or not. Okay, uh, okay, that's a pretty low bar, but uh, we got Klaus. We got Klaus. Uh, Michael, Tim, what about you? Uh, well, amusement park is not really my cup of tea, so I wouldn't probably go for this one. I would go for. Uh, aircraft carrier in, in Kaohsiung if it, if it dogs there. <laughs> that, that, that is my kind of amusement. That could be integrated. <laughs> One-tenth size replica yeah. of an American aircraft carrier. Right. There we go. Synergy. Uh, we're all about synergy on the show here. We're all, we also have uh, the youth demographic on the show today. We, we're lucky enough to have sitting right next to me uh, Michaela, who is uh, interning for ICRT this week. So maybe we can get uh, some insight. You're a student at a Taipei American School. Maybe get some insight into uh, how people in their teens would feel about this sort of stuff. Uh, you just heard Michael's report. Are you sold on Taroko Park? Well, it definitely seems interesting, something I'm willing to check out with my friends. But, uh, yeah, I haven't heard much about it, actually. You just heard 10 minutes about well, it. I mean, other than that, of course, <laughs> but prior to this. No. It, yeah, you know, uh, she, she makes a good point, actually, because there wasn't a lot of major promotion beforehand. There wasn't a lot of, like, pre promotion and it sort of came as a, a out of the blue that it opened on May 9th. I mean even that wasn't really advertised very well. There are Facebook sites and websites for this in in Chinese mostly. So you can look this up if you're interested in it and you can uh, watch videos of the racetrack and you can uh, take an interactive tour of the entire thing if, if that's your thing. But uh, yeah, th there wasn't uh, a lot of proper PR done, which is unfortunately something Gaoshan needs to improve on. But uh, if they're hoping to get 12 million visitors in their first year of operation, they're going to have to start uh, getting the, the news out a little bit better. All right. So we've got, I'll do it for the putting. Uh, not really my thing. And yeah, I guess I'll give it a shot. So stirring I'm reviews. I'm going to try to race around that circuit because uh, I don't know if you know anything about the, the Japanese one, but it, those turns are especially difficult. There's eight of them. And they're designed to be among the hardest kind of race turns ever. And I'm into this sort of stuff, so I'm going to go down and challenge myself, and uh, we'll see if I live. Uh, okay, well, uh, we, we, we really uh, need you to continue covering Southern Taiwan, <laughs> so uh, take those turns as safely as you can uh, for the sake of ICRT. But on that note, we're going to wrap up the whole show for today. Uh, please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website, on iTunes, and also uh, we're, we've been posting to the ICRT blog as well. Uh, a quick note about programming next week. Uh, we are going to be broadcasting at the very same time, 8.30 p.m., 
Uh, but we are going to devote the entire show to discussing Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration speech. So we're going to bring you uh, commentary exclusively on what comes out of that. Uh, that speech is scheduled to begin at 11 a.m. next Friday. So you can uh, find that on your TV or probably on ICRT as well. Setting off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, uh, joined in studio by Klaus Bardenhagen. Good to be here, as always. Uh, also in studio with us is uh, Michael Tim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, by phone, uh, once again, we have Michael Smith. Michael Smith, thank you. Bye again. Uh, and thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.